If you uh, watch such things in the news, you're going to know that recently Stephen Jobs passed away. A man who has been heralded as uh, a change agent, one who changed things in the world to a great extent. If you don't know who he is, he was the man who was behind Apple and Macintosh and now the iPads and iPhones and iPods and all of those things. When Apple first got going, he had a famous meeting with John Scully. Scully was the head of Pepsi, which at that time was the second largest producer of beverages in the world. They may be number one now, I don't know. And Jobs went to recruit Scully to try and get him to run Apple for him. And here's the way he did it. He went to John Scully and he simply said, Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling colored water or do you want to change the world? And Scully took the job. And the question for the morning is, will you say yes when your call comes? Will you say yes when your call comes even if the yes that you might answer could challenge you in significant ways. It might make a great difference in your life. And it's a worthy question for all of us to ask whether or not we want to make a difference. And whether or not the things that we're doing currently make a difference. Do you want to sell colored water? Or do you want a chance to change the world? And every one of us is faced with questions like that when we're facing questions like, what do we really want to get accomplished? When we're faced with our own mortality. I'm not getting younger. Remember years ago, I heard Lynn Anderson say when he was about my age, I'm not getting younger and I want to make sure before I die that I get the things done that I want to get done. And that's a worthy goal. Asking yourself the question whether or not you're getting the things done that you really want to get done. Sometimes we think, well, God could never really use me for anything significant anyway, so it doesn't really matter. By the way, you probably can tell I have a cold, so I brought my trusty box of Kleenex with me. I'm hoping that I won't have to use it. But one never knows about such things. Get it? Knows about such things? So we don't know if God can use us or not, but he might be able to use us. And will he be able to use us for something significant? I want you to turn to Acts chapter 6. Because there's a guy here who is used in a significant way by God. And I don't think he really anticipated it. You know, the first part of Acts chapter 6 is about the appointing of some deacons. There were Greek-speaking widows who were not receiving the daily distribution of food. They had a social problem going on in the church. And the Jewish brothers and sisters, those who were Christians but had Jewish extraction, hadn't set up a formal social network whereby the Greek-speaking widows, who didn't have that same strong Jewish heritage, were going to receive the food the way they needed to. And so there are some men who were appointed in order to distribute that food. We talked about this before. 
Stephen is one of the people who's appointed. Now, it looks like at this point that Stephen's just a guy who's been appointed to distribute some food. Little did he know what God was about to do with his life. Look at verse 8. It says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, Jesus didn't actually say that. Jesus did say, In three days, this temple will be torn down and I'll rebuild it again. But he was talking about his body, it specifically says, not the actual temple. Verse 15, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, as I said, it looks like at this point he's just a deacon who has been called to distribute some food. But there was something about Stephen's life and about his witness that wouldn't allow him to be silent. So we're talking here this year about, and you will be my witnesses. And Stephen becomes not just a distributor of food, but one who is a witness for Christ. And he keeps speaking for Jesus and even doing some miraculous things, the Bible says, in the name of Jesus. And because of this, he's arrested. He's brought before the Sanhedrin. And the fact is, they couldn't handle his witness. And so flip over in your Bibles to chapter 7, verse 54. It says, when they heard this, and when it says they heard this, they're talking about the testimony of Stephen. He talks for a good portion of this chapter about the history of Israel and about how God has been working within Israel. How God is there working through their history, preparing for them, preparing them for Jesus and his coming. And then in verse 54, it says, when they heard this, when they heard this record of how God had been working through Jesus, they were furious, gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. Did Stephen have a wife? Did Stephen have children? The Bible doesn't tell us. But I think there's certainly the reasonable possibility that he did. He may well have had a wife and children and those around him who loved him. And he wasn't called, at least on the surface, 
as a martyr. He was called to distribute some food. In the course of that, he continues to talk about Jesus. And eventually is immortalized as the first Christian martyr. One who gives hope to thousands who came after him who were also martyred for the name of Jesus. And so we just don't know what it is that God might do with us in what we think of as our rather meager circumstances. Stephen's death becomes a testimony for the church for the rest of history. His death is recorded in Scripture. And probably, as I read this passage today, every one of you knew exactly who I was reading about. Oh, you're reading about Stephen, the first martyr. I learned a long time ago in Sunday school, Stephen was the first martyr. Many, many people know that. And so this man called to serve tables ends up becoming a witness to Jesus and then eventually a witness of those who give their lives up for the sake of the gospel. And after him, there have become so many. If you were to enter Westminster Abbey from the west, there's a strange statue there. In 1998, there was a statue put up of Wang Zming outside of Westminster Abbey. The reason that it was put there is because Wang Zming was a Christian martyr in China. Christian missionaries first settled in Yunnan in China towards the end of the 19th century. And they came to Wuding County in 1906. After the Communist Revolution, the missionaries were expelled. Christianity was identified with imperialism. The religion continued to endure despite the pressures of political campaigns and public discouragements. Christians who sought to reconcile the demands of their faith with the political requirements of their new state could find the experience harsh and taxing. Between 1966 and 1976, the Cultural Revolution brought an onslaught against all that was ancient or venerated in Chinese life. The young Red Guards who led the campaign sought to break free of the past and to create a revolutionary society that was utterly new. Religion must be destroyed. Churches were closed. Christians were forced to meet secretly. In the 1960s, there were 2,795 Christians worshiping in Wuding County. You can imagine they kept careful records. Wang Xming lived among them as a pastor. We don't know that much about him. As a child, he was educated in mission schools, and then he taught as a member of the staff in one of, of those schools for 10 years. In 1944, he was elected chairman of the Safshu Shang Church Council in Wuding. In 1951, he was ordained. Wang showed his loyalty to the state, but he was also refusing to participate in meetings that denounced Christianity. Between 69 and 73, at least 21 Christian leaders in Wuding were interned. Some were intellectuals, others workers, some were senior party officials. Many were sent to camps. They were denounced or beaten. Wang Xming was known to be a critic of the atheistic campaigns of local Red Guards 
And in May 1969, he and other members of his family were arrested. Four years later, he was condemned to death. He was by then an old man of 66. He was executed on December 29, 1973, in a mass rally where more than 10,000 people, immediately after he was executed, charged the stage against the officials who were killing him. Wang's life, or wife was imprisoned for three years. Two of his sons were imprisoned for nine years. A third reportedly took his own life while under detention. However, the policy to destroy the faith was not effective. It failed. In October 1980, Wang Ming was rehabilitated by party officials, and his family offered compensation. In other words, they said that he had been rehabilitated when he really wasn't. Today, Wang is remembered reverently in the churches of Wuding, where there are around 30,000 Christians and more than 100 places of worship. And when the Anglican Church heard about his work and what he'd done, sacrificing himself for the cause of the gospel, they erected a statue of him at Westminster Abbey. He started out just as a a schoolboy, one who's faithful to Jesus in some almost unknown province of China. Today there are 30,000 Christians and 100 churches that exist only because of his work. It seems to me like this man who lived in obscurity was enabled, called to do something significant, even when he didn't know it. It looked to him like he was just living the life of being a Christian. But God used this rather simple life to make it so that, as I said, 30,000 people are now followers of Jesus. Stephen was called to serve tables. He ends up being a martyr that everybody remembers. What great thing does God have in store for you or your children or your grandchildren? of which you currently know nothing. What small incident, what unlikely event could happen to you in the next hour, in the next three hours, in the next two days, in the next two weeks? If you were open to listening, to hearing, and giving yourself to the cause What great thing would God do through you that right now you can't begin to anticipate? We just never know the doors that could open to us if we would just allow ourselves to hear and to listen. We've talked before about Albert Schweitzer. Prominent theologian, uh, trained in academia, taught at seminaries and universities, was also a musicologist, had a doctorate in music, loved to write articles about Bach. In 1905, he was sitting in his office and a paper came across his desk talking about how they needed missionaries in the Congo of Africa. He saw the letter and he he said later that he, he read it, set it down on his desk and said to himself, I now know how I'm going to spend the rest of my life. 
He immediately began to pursue a medical career. In 1913, he went to Africa and established a hospital. World War I came along. He was arrested as a war, uh, as a, you know, put in a concentration camp because he was German. He was in that concentration camp until 1918, got out, went back to Germany, was able to go back to Africa in 1924, and he spent the rest of his life there, founding hospitals, doing medical research, working among the people of Africa, all because he just answered the call to a letter that came across his desk. Here's a man who had a prominent career, was at the top of his field. One of the books that he wrote called The Quest of the Historical Jesus is one that I read in seminary because it was such a prominent book on theology. Gave him his life to ministering to people in Africa. Eventually won the Nobel Prize. We kind of know the rest is history. Well, maybe you won't be Wang Zhming and see 30,000 people converted because of your ministry. Maybe you won't be Albert Schweitzer and win a Nobel Prize. But you could be a Wilfred Orr. There's a name some of you recognize. In 1931, Wilfred Orr and some others, Lillian Torkelson, J.C. Bailey, decided that they needed to do something within Western Canada to promote Churches of Christ. And so in June of 1931, Wilfred Orr moved out of his house and moved into a train car, into a car that was they'd used it for... Uh, as a cafeteria, a kitchen. He moved his family into that and he took his house and he partitioned it up and he made out of it a series of classrooms. And that became the Winter Bible Schools in Minton, which eventually became Western Christian College. And I look around the audience today and there are lots of people here who have been influenced by Western Christian College. But you wouldn't have been influenced by Western Christian College if Wilfred Orr hadn't decided to move his family into a train car for a while so that students could come and participate in the winter Bible schools in Minton. And the reason he did that is because he heard the call of God. Because God said to him, and I don't think you heard a voice quite this clearly, but God said to him, I need you to do something that will help propagate my kingdom. And Wilfred Orr said, yes. And Lillian Torkelson yet said, yes. And others said, yes. And the impact on the lives of so many of you has been had because of their willingness. Stephen, Joan, Mann, and Victoria are just two common people. Steve has done well in business. But... 20 years ago or so, they decided that in addition to doing well in business, he wanted to have an impact on people in Africa. And so they started Zambia Mission Fund Canada. It started with just adopting babies. Megan is one of those who came and joined our family. But there were others in our church family who adopted children from Africa. And then they bought a farm and they built a reservoir and they started having influence on schools and they made a community for some blind people. Recently, we spent time here in the building and many of our people getting ready a bunch of baby bundles that we sent off to Victoria. John Casella delivered those with a truck. 
Churches across Western Canada sent things here and John loaded it up and took it to Victoria and it's going to get on a container and go to Africa. And Zambian Mission Fund Canada has ministered to hundreds of kids, allowing them to go to school when they otherwise wouldn't have. We have no idea how many lives have been literally saved because of what Zambia Mission Fund Canada has done. And it's all because a couple of people said, I think we hear God calling about ministering someplace. We need to do something about this problem in Africa. And so the question remains for us today, what are we going to do when we hear his call? What ways has God come into your life and into your heart What ways has he interceded to make himself known and has said to you, maybe not in words as clear as these, I need you to do something for me. I have a great vision for what I want you to get done. And what will be your answer when you hear that call? Robin and I have a family of uh, some friends of ours from Victoria whose son... Uh, grew up, uh, you know, in a Christian home, but by the time he got into high school, was in a lot of trouble. And he was doing the drug scene, and he got in trouble with the police, and was doing all kinds of things that he shouldn't have been doing. And I don't know exactly how this all turned around for him, but over the last few years, he ended up going to the University of Victoria and took a degree in philosophy. And then he went and got a master's degree in philosophy from the same institution. He was doing so well, he applied to Harvard Law School and was accepted. And so the other day I saw him on Facebook and he said, Harvard Law School, he was talking about some things. And I, I just wrote to him and said, hey, how's it going? And, and uh, then there was a comment about the movie, The Paper Chase. Some of you might remember this movie. Remember The Paper Chase? It's a Harvard Law student. And the movie is all about, uh, really it's about the... Uh, You know, what you should do with your career and what should be your priorities. And at the very end of the movie, this Harvard Law student, he gets an A on his final exam. And he gets the the letter sent to him that has the A in it, that has his grade recorded. And he doesn't even open the envelope. He just folds it up, makes a paper airplane out of it, and then he tosses it out into the ocean. Goes out onto a rock and tosses his, his grades into the ocean. And, you know, the point was trying to be made about, you know, we shouldn't take things like this so seriously. There are more important things in life than grades and that kind of thing. So Ryan, who's at Harvard Law School, he and I are writing a little bit about the end of this movie. And I said to him, I said, you know, it would have been nice if after the movie or at the end of the movie, you would have seen what would have happened to this lawyer's career. Like, did he end up just being a corporate cog? Or did he end up having the vision of Camelot? And I said vision of Camelot because John Kennedy, and many of you will know that he talked about the vision of Camelot, John Kennedy also went to Harvard. So I made that comment to Ryan, and he wrote back something about, oh, I can see where your political aspirations are. And I wrote back and I said, no, it's not political. It's personal. What are you going to do with your Harvard Law degree? Are you going to do something great with your Harvard Law degree? Or will you become the corporate cog? Now, I think becoming the corporate cog is fine. Most of us are the corporate cog. 
But can we be more than that at the same time? Can we hear another call in addition to that? Can we do something dramatic and great? If God drops in our laps an opportunity, can we do something with that opportunity? And are we ready to answer that call? Because I think it comes. I think it comes for all of us. The chance to do something more than what we're doing with what God has placed before us. Stephen could have easily said, sorry, I misspoke. Let me just uh, retract those words. I can see you picking up those stones. I'm done here. Sorry, it was a big mistake. He could have done that. But he didn't. He heard God's call and he answered. And it cost him his life. Sometimes I think that today we don't have enough causes that would cost us our lives. What is the thing that God might place before you that might well cost you your life if you give yourself to him? It may be that that cause, that call, is the one that most of all we need to answer. I'm so grateful that Stephen did I'm grateful that others have in response to his, his call and his death. God is calling you today, too, to something perhaps great. Maybe the next hour, maybe the next two hours, maybe the next three days. Something great will be placed before your life. How will you answer that call when it comes? Let's pray. Holy Father, help us to do something more than what we would do on our own if it were not for you. God, we want you to work among us so that our lives can be transformed. We pray that you'd lift our vision Challenge us. Challenge those of us who are comfortable, God. And don't leave us just right here standing pat. Instead, confront us with something great. Something that we can do for you. And strengthen us. Embolden us. Help us to answer with a yes. And help us, Father, to be open to you working among us to do the things that our world needs. We believe, God, you want to do that. Help us to be open to respond to what you want. And, Father, for those who are wrestling right now with decisions about how you might use them, give them strength. Give them clear thinking. Help them to understand the presence and the prompting of your spirit to change their hearts. Direct them down the path you want them to go. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.